Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. The Bird King is a jubilant story that challenges us to consider what true love is and the price of freedom at a time when the West and the Muslim world were not yet separate. G. Willow Wilson is the author of the critically acclaimed novel, Alif the Unseen, the memoir, The Butterfly Mosque, and the graphic novels, Cairo, Air, and Vixen. She co-created the celebrated comic series, Ms. Marvel, starring Kamala Khan, winner of the 2015 Hugo Award for Best Graphic Story and recently debuted as, store, as writer of the Wonder Woman comics. She currently lives in Seattle. We're delighted to have G. Willow Wilson with us this evening. So please uh, help me and join me in giving her a warm welcome. Hi, everybody, and thank you for coming out to uh, hang out this evening. It's, it's great to be back here in Los Angeles. Last time I was in this very room, I was here for, let's see, it must have been for Aleph the Unseen, and I was massively pregnant. Um, so it's, it's nice to be back here and not be pregnant. <laughs> Gives one a sort of clarity about things. Um, but it's, it's a really lovely store. It clearly has a lovely community attached to it. And as I was uh, chatting in the back before the event, I was saying how much fun it is for me when, when I am on tour to, to see how bookstores in different cities cultivate community and how they each have their own unique personality reflecting the personality of the neighborhood and the city uh, that they serve. Uh, so it's, it's a real treat for me. And, um, and, uh, and I hope for you as well, because I, uh, I, might, I may leave here with, with an armload of books that I did not intend to carry back on the plane with me. Uh, the Bird King, in a lot of ways, is one of the most personal things I've ever written, which might sound odd, given that it's set 500 years ago in Spain. <laughs> um, but it, it was very cathartic for a bunch of different reasons. It, uh, it, it takes place in a time when the boundaries that today we see as fixed between this entity that we call the West and the entity that we call the Muslim world uh, were very much fluid. They were not fixed. They were constantly changing. And it was a period of tremendous hybridity of not only Eastern and Western thought and art and architecture, uh, but also between philosophies, between religions. There were long stretches of time, not permanent stretches of time, but long stretches of time in Spain, when Spain was called Al-Andalus and was under Muslim rule, when Muslims and Christians and Jews lived in relative peace and harmony, uh, punctuated by eras of violence, but when there was harmony, tremendous things happened. Uh, the canon that we now kind of accept as being the de facto foundation of Western civilization, the works of Aristotle and Socrates and Plato, were at one point in history very nearly lost 
And it was during this era, during sort of the height of, of Al-Andalus and the translation schools that were popular there, that these works were translated from Greek and Latin into Arabic and into Spanish and then into other Western languages. So it was that hybridity, that cooperation between peoples that in some ways very literally saved Western civilization. Uh, and and it, it feels personal to me because, uh, because of who I am and the choices that I've made, I get, I get asked a lot to choose. I get called things occasionally on the internets, uh, like traitor or pervert occasionally, because now we sort of perceive these two entities, Islam and, and the West, as being separate, having always been separate, as representing fundamentally different ideals, as being incompatible with one another. And uh, for me, going back in time to a period when that was not true uh, felt very comforting in a lot of ways. I first became interested in this period of Spanish history and of medieval history in general uh, when a bunch of years ago, well, it couldn't have been that long ago, uh, my family, like probably a lot of yours, heard of this new data collection racket called 23andMe um, and said, oh, let's, let's, you know, let's all swab our spit and find out where we're from. Um, and there were no big surprises. It was not one of those situations that you uh, occasionally hear of where grandpa is not grandpa. Um, but we did find something interesting. My, my mom's side of the family is mostly Italian. They look very Italian. Uh, our uh, great-great-grandparents came through Ellis Island, and uh, you know we, we sort of know their story. That's kind of settled history in our, in our family. But what was interesting to discover once uh, the spit came back was that a little tiny sliver of that ancestry was Iberian, North African, Balkan, and Ashkenazi, which seems like a strange kind of conglomerate of things. And I'm not talking about giant percentages here. It was just a little a few percentage points, uh, but I immediately thought, aha, I, I know what that is. <laughs> uh, and it's quite common for people who have ancestry along the northern Mediterranean to have that little bit of Andalusian ancestry because after the beginning of the Inquisition, when Iberian Jews and Muslims were given the choice of to convert or flee or to give up their property, many of them went to uh, well, it was not called Italy at that time, but the Italian city-states um, and other ports along the northern Mediterranean. So it's fairly common to have that little slice of ancestry of, uh, of those people who left Spain at that time. So, you know, it was, it was really, it wasn't a huge deal, except that for me, it was almost a way back. It was sort of a little message saying that maybe those things that you think of as being fundamentally separate aren't so separate after all. Maybe within us we have that intermingling of ideas and of worlds and that these words like traitor and, and pervert, and pervert's a weird one, and you know we can get into that in the question and answer if you're curious as to how that comes about. Really it's just that you know I think at some point a bunch of guys got together in a room and decided the exact hem length of freedom. And if you go above that, then you're 
one kind of pervert, and if you go sort of below that, then you're a different kind of pervert. So, it, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things. Thank goodness that there are people making these decisions for us so that we don't have to, um, you know, think about it. Um, so it, it really, writing in this era of history felt like connecting two ends of a line to form a circle, like going back to something and feeling like I could make a connection with things that I had been, that it was not simply a departure from what I loved, but also a returning. Um, this is a story fundamentally about two friends, Fatima, who uh, gets to Al-Andalus through sort of interesting and complex ways. She's, uh, uh, her ancestry is um, from the Northwest Caucasus region. And her best friend, Hassan the Palace Mapmaker, who is given a gift. He can make maps of things that he has never seen, and sometimes of things that don't quite exist until he asks them to. And they are living in the palace of the Alhambra in Granada, which at this point in 1491 is the only city-state left in what was formerly the empire of Al-Andalus. And everyone in the palace at this point knows that this is the last summer of the empire of Al-Andalus. And it is only a matter of weeks or days before King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella will offer terms of surrender that the Sultan cannot refuse. And so this is sort of the atmosphere that is hanging over the palace. And in that atmosphere, Fatima and Hassan are sort of retreating into the games that they played as children, uh, in which they take fragments of uh, Alatar's famous medieval Sufi teaching poem, The Conference of the Birds, and invent stories of birds and kind of uh, set them aloft. So I'll read to you a little bit from this first chapter, and then after that we can uh, talk about it some more. Choose a bird, said Fatima. It was the way all their conversations went now. The palace, rambling as it was, had grown cramped under siege, the air perpetually stale with the shut-up breath, of a hundred half-starved mouths. Every conversation became an argument. It was safer to retreat into the games of their childhood as they did more and more into the stories of creatures that could fly away. Fatima returned to her patch of sun on the balustrade. A bird, she repeated. Hassan chewed for a moment before answering. Red-crested pochard, he said triumphantly. Fatima laughed at him. That's not a real bird, she said. You're just being an idiot. It is so a real bird. It's a sort of duck, a water bird. We used to have them on my mother's land near the lake. Hunters would come to trap them in the fall. In the course of their game, they had long ago run through all the ordinary birds and had since moved on to more exotic ones. Very well, said Fatima. The pochard, the pochard. Since he has a bright crest, perhaps he was vain. And when the other birds sought him out to accompany them on their journey across the dark sea to the mountain of Qaf, he refused. Why should he leave his home, where everyone flattered him and he could spend all day preening? The people of Qaf might not appreciate his plumage as they ought to do, but the hoopoe, ah yes, the hoopoe is my favorite. The hoopoe, who also has a lovely red crest, scolded the pochard for his shallowness. And then? I don't know, Fatima yawned. The effort of thinking too hard in bright sunlight had begun to tire her. But surely something silly enough to be called a pochard wouldn't survive such a long journey. Make me a new map. I want a view. A view, muttered Hassan. 
You've got lovely views already. Look at this view. Look at the fork-tailed swallows flying low across the reflecting pool. At night, you can see a second field of stars in the water. Enjoy it now, Fa, for soon it'll all belong to Castile. Will you make me a map or not? She demanded. Yes, of course I will. A map, a view. Hassan wiped his hands on his coat and sat down at his work table, a low, scuffed oak plank balanced on two stacks of books. Fatima knelt beside him. She liked to look at his face while he worked, to see it transformed by the fervent, vacant light that possessed him as his maps took shape. His lips would part in an eager smile, like a child's. There was a bliss about him when he worked and when he prayed that made Fatima wonder whether he knew what it felt like to have one's faith in the goodness of things removed. Fatima herself had never knelt upon a prayer mat except grudgingly. Obedience was demanded of her all day and on many nights. When she was asked to pray, she had no more left in her. Hassan was different. His obedience was always rewarded. Whatever force he called upon in his silent moments always answered him. And though the maidservants might giggle and the undersecretaries scowl when he passed, he did not appear to notice. Hassan was the only person she allowed herself to watch so openly. It gave her a stealthy joy to sit beside him and try to translate the lively conversation between his brows and know he neither minded nor misread her. He saw her looking now and smiled absently, reaching out to stroke her, finger, her jaw with one finger. He took out a charcoal pencil and whittled it with a small knife, removing a fragment of paper from one of the untidy stacks on his desk. His fingers, the length and suppleness of which almost redeemed his awkward features, moved quickly across the page, defining the right angles of a short hallway, the nautilus shell progression of a flight of stairs. This is the way you came, said Hassan. His pencil rasped and shed black ash. This is a door. It leads off the small antechamber in the harem where the washerwoman keeps her baskets and soap. That is the door you want. Fatima teased the map from beneath his fingers and slipped it into the embroidered V at the front of her tunic against her skin. Hassan watched her and sighed. You're wasted on me, he said. Look at you. He took her hands in his and turned her to face the sun. Look. Fatima smiled. She was not above admiring herself. Her eyes were so black and unflawed that they swallowed the afternoon light without reflecting anything, like a night without stars. They floated in a face whose pallor might make another girl look sickly. There was no high color in her lips or cheeks of the kind the poets praised. Her beauty was something too remote for poetry, a tilting symmetry of jaw and cheekbone and dark brow. Only her hair seemed to be made of anything earthly. It billowed over her shoulders in a mass of sable curls that snapped the teeth of every comb Lady Aisha had ever taken to them. She was the last reminder of a time of prosperity, when pretty girls could be had from Italian merchants for unearthly sums. There had been no money and no victories since. The Nasserid sultans, heirs to the empire of Al-Andalus, to the foothold of Islam in Europe, seemed to have few talents beyond losing the territories won by their forefathers. They preferred beauty to war, they had built the Alhambra, every brightly tiled inch of which represented the life work of some master craftsman. That was all Al-Andalus was now, an empire indoors, a palace, and inside it a garden, and inside that, a beautiful girl. Men would risk their fortunes for an hour with you, said Hassan, letting her arms drop. Other men. You risk your fortune for my company, said Fatima. I love you better than I would love those other men. Hassan leaned back in his chair and rubbed his eyes with charcoal-blackened fingers. You're a good friend to me, Fa. 
Friends are rare these days, but you've got to be more careful. Laughter carries in the court of myrtles and a woman's laughter most of all. It may carry all the way to the Sultan's quarters, and then what? Fatima shrugged. The Sultan knows what you are. Still, I'm not supposed to speak to you unchaperoned. It doesn't look proper. And there's a vizier coming in half an hour who wants a map of the Castilian military encampment at Rehana. So, he pressed a kiss into the palm of her hand. Go look at your view. Fatima touched the map beneath her shirt. It crackled under her fingers. What kind of view is it, she asked. Is it very pretty? Is it possible to see the sea from there? Hassan was bent over his work again. The sea is miles and miles to the south across the mountains, he muttered. Not even I can give you a view like that. Fatima left the way she had come. There were no guards posted in the court of Myrtles, situated as it was near the heart of the palace, away from the bustle and heat of the Mexoir, where the sultan heard petitions with his viziers and lawyers and secretaries. Yet it was summer, and the black-green bushes for which the courtyard was named were in full bloom, attracting a throng of beardless students set loose from their daily lessons. Fatima could see their skullcaps bobbing above the flowery hedge. She pressed herself against a pillar in the arched colonnade that framed the veranda and held her breath. There was a volley of laughter from among the myrtles. One of the students began to recite his lesson, half singing a few rhymed verses of the Akida in an unsteady tenor. Other voices joined his, growing softer as the students drifted away toward the shade of the interior rooms. Fatima pressed her cheek against the tepid stone. The door by which she had entered the courtyard stood nearby. It was not quite closed, so that she would make no noise when she returned. She passed through it on light feet and shut it behind her. The hall was plunged into darkness. She felt her way by memory, breathing the austere reek of dust and disuse, until she came to a meager strip of light on the ground that signaled the door to the heron's antechamber. Here she paused. No noise came from beyond it, no footfall interrupted the light beneath it. Fatima found the latch with her hands and pushed the door open. The antechamber was just as Hassan had described it, though Fatima had trouble imagining why he had ever set foot there himself. Buckets and rags were piled in one whitewashed corner along with stoppered jugs of vinegar and a tub of congealed soap. An arched passage tiled in blue and gold led to the common room of the harem itself. All these things were familiar. The small door set in the right-hand wall was not. The door was half of Fatima's height and whitewashed, like the walls, a crossbeam cut through it diagonally, giving the impression of a cupboard or closet. She opened it, expecting stacks of bed linen. Instead, she saw a flight of narrow stone stairs. Grinning to herself, Fatima ducked through the door, ascending the steps two at a time, pleased by the soft scuffing noise her feet made on the flecked stone. The edge of each step was worn to a fine polish, as if the staircase had been traversed by hundreds of pairs of feet. Yet there was no sound, save from her own movements, no hint that anyone else was near. There was strong light coming from somewhere. Squinting upward, Fatima thought she saw a window, or perhaps an empty arch. She put one hand on the wall, wide blocks of red-brown stone, in all respects a proper old wall, like all the proper walls of the old palace, and crept along, stepping gingerly on each unknown surface until she reached the top. They ended in a sort of parapet, a small square tower room with a narrow window in each wall, Fatima picked one and stuck her head out. She was greeted by a blast of wind. It smelled of dry hay and cold water. The summer heat would not last much longer. Fatima took several deep breaths, enjoying her own dizziness, 
blinking in the sharp-shadowed afternoon as the objects below her resolved themselves. She was in a southeast corner of the palace. Her window overlooked the low roof of the mexoir and the wide lawn beyond, burned yellow now as it always was by summer's end. The hill spilled away beneath it, cloaked in dark elms, tapering off at the smoke-clad medina in the valley below. There were the red-tiled roofs of villas, the cramped knot of houses that formed the juderia. She could see tiny green squares of garden in innumerable courtyards, and below these, in the lap of the valley, the shallow river that supplied them. In the distance where the ground flattened out, there was the wide plain of the Vega de Granada, smudged here and there with the plumes of smoke and dotted with skeletal remains of siege engines. Beyond these human outworks were the shoulders of the mountains that receded south in a humid haze, as ambivalent toward their Catholic rulers as they had been toward their Muslim ones, their pelt of pines and grasses unfurling toward a pale and factionless sky. They ended in nothing, for Fatima's knowledge of the world did not extend as far as the sea. Yet standing there, she thought she detected the faint, damp scent of salt carried on the wind from the south. Hassan had tried his best. Fatima pulled her head back inside with a feeling of regret. Lady Aisha had undoubtedly awoken by now and gone to bathe. Her bondswoman's absence would be noted. She turned away from the window and hurried down the echoless stairs, her footfall landing strangely in her ears, emphatic like a kind of speech. At the bottom, she lifted the latch on the little unassuming door and passed through, shutting it behind her as softly as she could. She stood on tiptoe in the antechamber with Hassan's map in her hands. If she misplaced it, she would forget. The location of the door would grow indistinct in her memory, and she would confuse it with other doors that led to other rooms. She had, on occasion, attempted to find her way back to the places Hassan marked for her without a map, and inevitably got herself turned around, or found familiar rooms rendered suddenly alien. It was unpleasant to be lost in your own house. She did not intend to repeat the experience. Fatima folded the map and tore it along the crease, then folded it and tore it again, until she was left with a pile of tiny fragments. These she let flutter to the ground. Straightening, she smoothed her tunic and trousers, setting off down the tiled hallway that led into the harem itself. She did not look back. She knew well enough what she would see. The wall would fold up without a sound, as if it was made of ether, and the door would vanish, leaving no trace of itself but motes of dust suspended in the light. Thank you. Uh, I'm happy to take your questions. I do have strabismus, so it's impossible to tell who I'm looking at, so I will attempt to describe your clothing, since that usually helps. <laughs> but don't be, don't be shy. Otherwise, I can just stand here and do my little song and dance. I don't actually have one, but I'll make one up. <laughs> yes, in the yellow shirt. That's an excellent, excellent question. So for the, the actual history, I try to be as accurate as possible. Having said that, I moved things like the treaty uh, between the last sultan and uh, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella back by about six months so that the characters could leave in August uh, just because that's a much better month to travel in than January when it actually happened. Um, but for things like social scenarios, social history, 
uh, how people would relate to each other, uh, the, the makeup of the palace of Alhambra. Um, I tried to, well, I'll be as historically accurate as one can about history that is, that is not settled. If you read uh, the later Catholic Spanish accounts of the fall of Granada, you will get a very different picture than, say, the Arab accounts, some of which have been lost because the Inquisition burned a lot of stuff. Um, but, you know, for example, even if you look today on the, the sort of the tourist website of the Alhambra and they talk about the harem, the women's quarters of, of the palace, you get this like, I'm gonna paraphrase here, but they say something like, you know, the Sultan would come and stand on a balcony and like throw a rose down and whatever maiden caught the rose, that's like the woman he would spend the night with. And, you know, reading that, I was like, that doesn't sound right. Um, <laughs> that sounds like a lot. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the sort of, the Muslim sources were more or less silent on these issues. So in cases like that, I would go back and look at the actual architecture. And in the case of the Alhambra, if you look at the part of the palace that was typically assumed to be the women's quarters, you simply couldn't fit dozens of maidens in this, in this space. They'd be crammed in there like sardines. It's quite small compared to like the bureaucratic wing of the palace. Um, so I made the assumption that the, the sort of the social setup in the palace would be more like the older, sorry, the older Arab models and less like the later uh, Ottoman models, which I assume is sort of where this very flowery kind of uh, exotic view of what life would have been like came from. Um, so, you know, it's, and in certain cases, as in the case of uh, Aisha al-Hurra, who's Lady Aisha mentioned briefly here, I use exact words or words as they are passed down to us of those people, um, because in some cases their words are recorded. So in the case of, uh, of Lady Aisha, she has this very biting line that she is said to have spoken as she and her son uh, the Sultan are leaving Granada for the last time when she sort of looks at him and he's weeping and she says, you weep like a woman for what you could not defend as a man. And I'm like, ouch. Um, <laughs> so, you know, where it's, where it's possible to capture as closely as one can in fiction, the personalities of people who really lived, I did try to hew to what we know of those people. Though, of course, you know, when you're looking back through time 500 years and, and you're looking at a period of history that is still to this day very heavily contested, it's not always easy to decide what is the accurate picture and what is history as it is written by the victors. So, that was probably a longer answer than you wanted. <laughs> yes, here in the front. Uh, I'm, I'm always interested to hear writers talk about what writers sort of lit them on fire when they were young and made them want to write. Like yeah. Um, I, you know, as a kid, I was, I was huge and a young adult, really, into fantasy. I was a big fantasy person. Uh, you know, my, my parents read me um, The Lord of the Rings starting when I was three years old uh, and The Chronicles of Narnia and all of that sort of classic children's English fantasy lit. Um, as I got older, I got into comics in a big way. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of of the Fox Kids Saturday morning X-Men cartoon generation. Everybody's nodding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not alone. Um, and, uh, you know, I was really into the, the sort of British wave of comics of the late er 80s and early 90s, Sandman, Shade the Changing Man, Preacher, all of that stuff. 
Um, and, you know, these days I, I really, I like to sort of read as far outside my wheelhouse as I can, uh, just to kind of stretch myself. So I'll read a lot of nonfiction. I read, uh, you know, a certain amount of history. Uh, Mar uh, Alison Weir, who writes biographies of medieval women. Um, Eric Larson, who else? Uh, Jhumpa Lahiri, I really love uh, as a prose stylist. Oh my God. Um, you know, one of those writers who you just read it and I'm like, I will never be this good. I could work the rest of my life and I will never be this good. Uh, and then you just kind of accept it <laughs> and you move on. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty omnivorous generally, yeah. Yes, in front here. It's a very, very different process. Uh, comics are very demanding from a technical and, and sort of stylistic perspective. You've got a set number of pages to work with. Uh, usually you need to have everything plotted out many months in advance because as the writer, you're just sort of the first person in the chain. There's also the artist, the colorist, the letterer. Um, you know, and, and an editor who sort of organizes all of those people or tries um, before they drop dead of a heart attack. And so you have, to, you have to kind of know where you're going. It's much less like prose. In prose, um, you only really need to see as far as your headlights. I think this is a Neil Gaiman uh, metaphor, you know, that you're sort of driving through fog and you see exactly as far as your headlights are in front of you, so maybe 12 or 15 feet, and you don't know what's past that. Um, you really can't do that in comics, you have to know. So you have to plot it out pretty well. Uh, you have to keep in mind things that you don't really need to think about in prose. For example, if you want to set up a, um, a cliffhanger, if you want to build suspense in a comic, you have to make sure that the resolution of the cliffhanger is on a page turn because if it's on a facing page, you've ruined the suspense as soon as you set it up. Uh, so you, you have to keep the actual physical object in mind in ways that you don't with prose. So it, it, it really is a tough uh, format to get used to. And um, you know, whenever I go back to prose, it's, it's just sort of like running around like Lady Godiva with no clothes on because you know it's, it's really, it can be 200 pages, it could be 500 pages, you can add subplots, it, you know, you can really do anything you want. Um, but comics, you have to be quite, quite disciplined. Yes, in the white sweater in the back, yes. So Aleph kind of came out of a couple of different things. Uh, I, I started it when I was living in Cairo um, after the, well, I started what would become it, I should say, uh, after the 2005 presidential elections, or I should say presidential elections. Um, and it was, the, it was the first time in which people, particularly young people in Egypt and, and in the broader Middle East were using the internet to kind of circumvent state censorship. And I had been trying and trying and trying to get Western presses to, to pay attention to this, that, hey, there's this whole generation of young people in the Middle East who are raised with the internet, just kind of like we were, and censorship and, and sort of digital security has not caught up with them. 
And so there's a lot going on with you know, bloggers and organizing and all of this stuff that is taking place online. Don't you think we should be paying attention to what these people are doing? And the answer was kind of resounding. They have internet in the Middle East? Wow, I thought that's really unique, don't they? Like, I mean, there was, and this is this was, was like educated people here in the West. I mean, it was it was kind of disgusting, to be frank. Um, and so, I was like, you know what? Why don't I just write a novel? <laughs> it, it, you know, it, it's it, this is kind of the sad reality is that, is that oftentimes people are willing to accept ideas in fiction that they are not willing to accept in real life. Um, so I, I wrote the book. I don't have a real background in computer science, which shows if, if you do and you read that book, you're like, oh my God, there's bits that will jump out as being fraudulent in the extreme. Um, but I was interested, be, because of the issue of anonymity, I was interested in what would eventually be called, oh no, I'm gonna forget. Uh, anyway, so the, the, the central premise of the book, the idea that maybe if we can't track people through IPs or you know the people who are very clever at avoiding being tracked through traditional methods online, perhaps things about their unique typing patterns, word usage, uh, the way that they particularly misspell things, maybe that could be something that you could follow. And uh, it, it became a thing, and I'm, I'm now blanking on, on what it's actually called. Uh, that, that popped up in the news shortly thereafter. And IBM started following me on Twitter and they put me in there. You know how you can put people in lists? They put me in a list called security thought leaders. And I was like, well, I hope our security does not depend on me because that was my only thought. <laughs> um, but it was really just because of, you know, having been in Egypt at that particular time when blogging and social activism was, was blooming online and, and the censors hadn't quite caught up with it yet. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I sort of had hoped that as a result, we would take those, I don't want to say kids because that seems demeaning, but th they were so young at that time that we would take these people more seriously. Um, and instead, a lot of them ended up in jail and dead. Um, which, which still really bothers me. You know, like if, we, if we had just caught on earlier and paid attention and not been so caught up in our stereotypes about what happens to people in other countries and what platforms they're using and which ones they aren't, then, uh, you know, maybe some of that could have been averted. Anyway, I don't even remember what the original question was. No, I don't really have a computer science background. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's been a long tour and I'm coming down to the cold and I've taken cold medicine. I don't even remember what kind. So if I start speaking in tongues, I hope you will forgive me. Uh, we have time for maybe one or two more. Yes, in the blazer. Uh, that's a good question. The answer is no, simply because, as you'll see, this first part of the book is set very much, well, a lot, largely, within the historical record. But after this, it's going to depart into something much more fantastical and into an imagined landscape and pick up a lot of different people, a, uh, a very salty Breton monk, 
and an even saltier genie and an English laundress and a doctor from Timbuktu. And th that's not a throwaway line, by the way. There was an actual like world-renowned medical school in Timbuktu at that time. Um, so, you know, it, it, we, we kind of veer away from the historical record fairly quickly. Uh, but, you know, I, I didn't want to start writing this first bit, which is, does involve real people, or people who actually lived, I should say, um, until I felt comfortable with that era. So, you know, it meant not only doing research about sort of, okay, in this hotly contested historical record, what can we construe as true and, and what might be exaggerated or, you know, who's right and who's wrong, but also very basic things like, were they putting soles on their shoes? And if so, what kind? Did they have chimneys yet? Or were, were they still doing, you know, braziers and fire pits with a hole in the roof? Uh, were they doing mortar between the stones yet? Or was it still just stone on stone? You know, like stuff like that, where if you don't have a handle on it, it's very difficult to kind of inhabit that world. And so I did a lot of things like uh, skulking around the Facebook page for the SCA Iberia Club, the Society for Creative Anachronisms, because those people know literally everything. I mean, you know, seams, yarn dyeing, hems, like headgear, oh my God, it was unreal. Um, so, you know, I, I, it, was, it was a lot of stuff like that. And, and as a result, it was a lot of stopping and starting because I'd get in and two paragraphs later, I'd been like, oh God, they've got to change their clothes. What am I gonna do? Uh, and, you know, so, and there were a lot of interesting sort of, um, not secondary sources, but, but sources that were not about the great conflicts and the great personalities and, and the political stuff, but were about instead daily life that I found myself turning to a, uh, a lot. The Book of Games in particular, um, which talks about sort of court life a couple of centuries before this, but is wonderfully illustrated and sort of gives you an idea of what social life and intellectual life was like. Um, so, you know, it, it, was, it was sort of preparing myself in a very type A way and getting through that bit, and then it, it really opens up and um, we get on a boat and kind of go into literally uncharted waters, and then I'm like, I'm free! <laughs> um, to start making stuff up. <laughs> Let's do maybe one more question, and then I'm happy to sign whatever you've brought. Yes, in the black shirt in the middle. Oh, wow, what a good question. You know, some very smart person, I don't know who, said all art is autobiographical, and I think that's true. Um, you know, I, I try to imagine myself in the boots of every character who has a speaking part simply so that hopefully what comes out of their mouth sounds like something a real human being would say and feel. Um, and, and so I try to do that with, with all my characters. In, you know, in things like Aleph the Unseen, or in Cairo, or even in Ms. Marvel, um, I kind of, I, I try to have like at least one rubbishy white girl uh, somewhere <laughs> who, who's, who's a Mary Sue of sorts, uh, <laughs> or who at least, you know, is, is, is sort of me working out my own flaws, or at least, you know, sort of showing, showing them in, in hopefully humorous fashion. You know, in, in Aleph the Unseen, there's an, a nameless convert. She's just called the convert. She never gets a name. She's just kind of bumming around the Middle East, getting in the way. Um, 
And you know, what, when I was on tour for that book, people were like, is she you? And I'm like, well, in part, yes. She's some things that I am and some things that I try really hard not to be. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's, but each of those characters has to be in some way a person that I feel I can write well, that their voice sounds relatable in some way. Uh, and even in this case, you know, one of the main characters is an in inquisitor. And, you know, I, I sort of tried, I was like, I'm gonna sit down, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna study up about all of these different things and I'm gonna try to put myself in the shoes of this really uniquely horrible person. Um, because even characters like that, if they become farcical or caricatured, then we forget how evil gets in. You know, we forget that evil usually gets in with a smile and, you know, a helping hand and with every appearance of being good and wonderful. So, yeah, even the bad guys, I, I sort of try to do in such a way that, that there's a thread that connects them to something in our own experience. All right, well, thank you. Thank you for the wonderful questions. Thank you for coming out. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.